everyone, I'm your host, Bella Page, and after suffering from post-concussion syndrome for years, it was time to do something about it. So welcome to the Post-Concussion Podcast, where we dig deep into life when it doesn't go back to normal. Be sure to share the podcast and join our support network, Concussion Connect. Let's make this invisible injury become visible. The Post-Concussion Podcast is strictly an information podcast about concussions and post-concussion syndrome. It does not provide nor substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are simply intended to spark discussion about concussions and post-concussion syndrome. Welcome to the Post-Concussion Podcast with myself, Belle Page, and today's guest, Dr. Michael Longyear. Michael has a passion for helping others, and it comes from a personal experience having been paralyzed through a traumatic football injury during his sophomore year in high school, he beat the odds and did what the doctors said was impossible. His passion led him to Parker University to study chiropractic, where he graduated valedictorian and continued his studies in applied clinical neuroscience. Still searching for answers, he continued to study many disciplines, chiropractic, neurology, psychology, and functional medicine, just to name a few. These disciplines have all helped him design his unique brand of healthcare. Before moving to Jacksonville, Dr. Longyear was the director of the NeuroLife Institute of Life University, where he specialized in complex neurological conditions that other healthcare practitioners had given up on. While there, he was also a part of research with concussion and depression. In addition to clinically treating patients and participating in research, he was responsible for designing and teaching programs for doctors around the world in the cutting-edge field of applied clinical neuroscience and functional neurology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Longyear. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat about this. So to start, do you want to talk a little bit about what led to your interest in helping others with concussions? Sure. So well, I guess it kind of goes into my story of getting into healthcare and, and really working with athletes originally. I had a pretty bad football injury when I was in high school. I was actually paralyzed from a hit that I took trying to catch a football. And originally they told me in the hospital that I would never walk again. And thankfully they didn't really know everything. The doctors weren't infallible. And I was actually able to walk out of the hospital about a month later. So that kind of started me in my journey of going into healthcare, and you know I really wanted to work in sports medicine, and in working with athletes, you can't, you know, in the last ten years, you couldn't have gone into sports medicine and worked with athletes and not been dealing with concussions on the front lines, just because you know with the whole with Junior Seau and all of that stuff that kind of came out, it really started to shed a light on concussions and what they were doing to athletes' brains. So we just started getting and treating a lot of them. We worked, you know, my first clinic, it was at Life University. So we worked with a lot of rugby players, a lot of hockey players, things like that. So we were right across the street from the field. We used to joke that we went over and made fresh ones to work on. But yeah, so that's kind of in working with athletes and through my journey kind of got me into working with and seeing all that we saw really with concussion. Mm -hmm. I think it really helps when you have a background 
in what you're treating or a different because then you get the other perspective of like I've gone through this in a different way but I kind of understand what you're not saying to me as a patient because <laughs> I know for myself a lot of the time a lot of medical professionals I did see weren't athletes and trying to explain to them that I wasn't very good at telling them the truth. I would kind of hide symptoms and I would kind of push myself way further than most people would because I was so kind of addicted to being an athlete, playing a pro-life type career, and you just can't stop. Yeah, we always said athletes want to play, right? They're never, you know, if they think telling you all of their symptoms is going to keep them out even one game or, or one extra play, they're going to hide that from you. You know, working in athletic mm -hmm. training before even going down the rabbit hole with chiropractic neurology and all that stuff. It was like pulling teeth trying to get athletes to tell you what was really going on sometimes. Mm -hmm. I remember I would say like one thing, and I was about 15 at the time when it started. And as the years got on, my mom would just like look at me and be like, talk. She's like, do not say it was not that bad. And she'd just like be like sitting there, like looking at me, shaking her head, like, you're saying you've had a headache and then you act like it wasn't a big deal, but you know, you might have managed to go to school if you did or go ride a horse and practice, but then you were sleeping or complaining or crying in pain. She's like, You're not okay. Stop telling people you are, that kind of thing. But it is really hard. And so what do you think is often missed in regards to concussion recovery with athletes, other than just them? hiding a lot of it. Yeah, well, and I think that's a big part of it is they hide a lot of what's going on. But one of the things, you know, we've got all of these tests and a lot of testing that will measure everything from cognition to balance testing to looking really closely at the eyes. So we've got some really good objective findings at this point that give us a lot of information. However, the part that and the easiest part for the athlete to hide is the emotional aspect. I've worked with athletes at a really high level for a while, and they, again, they want to play. So they're going to keep everything they can from you. We had one kid who was on just to leave the house and drive to the end of campus. He had to be on 100 milligrams of sertraline, which is an anti-anxiety medication. Otherwise, he'd have a panic attack and he'd freak out. He'd have to get out of the car and walk around the vehicle and kind of touch it, make sure he was still on this planet. And he had been cleared to play. So to me, they completely ignored that mental health aspect and cleared him to play because he was able to do a one-legged stand. He was able to follow the doctor's finger and he could remember, you know, five words backwards or whatever the test was that they did for him. But when he complained about the anxiety and talked about that piece, they just gave him a medication for it. So in my opinion, that's something we don't focus in nearly enough on, even though the original reason that we really started paying attention to it was depression, mental health, and actually suicide is what brought the focus really on with football players. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really important to talk about the emotional part. I know for myself, when I was younger, I convinced myself that if I got my physical health better, then the mental health would fix itself. And I just thought if the headaches stopped, then all these emotions, like I don't want to be here, all those types of things of like extreme anxiety attacks, all that would just go away because that was my biggest problem. My head was, if the pain's gone, then everything will improve. And I learned that that was not the case. And I am an attempted suicide survivor, as many listeners know here. And that's not how it worked. 
I did not address my mental health for years. I hid it from everyone and they would send me to the odd specialist and I'd have one conversation with them and I'd quit and never go back. And so all these things do need to be fixed. And the emotional part is huge with athletes. And I think it's that desire to play. Like we've talked about how you just want to get back in it. You don't want to miss out, especially if you're in a team sport, you have all your friends, no matter what kind of sport they're continuing on without you, maybe moving up in the ranks, depending on what you are in. So how do you think that can be fixed? You said they can pass those tests and I could pass those tests because I got good at passing those tests, as bad as that sounds, because eventually they're not that hard. You can kind of pass that test for five minutes, but if you asked me on a bad day, I wouldn't have passed it. So what do you think we could do to help fix that? Well, you know, I think it's got to be multifactorial. And, you know, we've had 13-year-olds that we were doing concussion baselines or concussion screens with that knew how to game the test, right? I had this one kid walked up, he's like, what are we doing today? I'm like, we're doing concussion baselines. He's like, oh, I know what to do on this. And then he looked at his buddy and he's like, do really bad so that if you get an injury, you can still pass it. And I was like, dude, you're 13. You shouldn't be trying to game this test. But the testing's got to get cleaner. It's got to get better as far as that goes so that we don't have testing that maybe people can game. But I think the other thing is, I kind of love the phrase, it takes a village. And I think we need everybody involved because if you're just asking the athlete, you're going to get the answer that the athlete wants to tell you, which is why one of the big things is we go to their teammates. And when you get to work with the whole team, you can ask people, well, how are they acting outside of here? You can talk to family members. You talked about sleeping more than usual or sleeping when you might be able to get through your sport, but then you're going to have to take a three hour nap at the end of it. Quiz people on that. You'd be surprised at what gets normalized by these athletes that are going through this stuff. And even their friends are just like, well, he's just shaking it off or he's just rubbing it off or you know, whatever it is. And we've gotta be okay and have the ability to reach out to the people around the athlete and the people that make up their inner circle, especially. Mm -hmm. I really like that because it is really important. That's why I said like having my mom in those meetings or appointments often saved me because sometimes I wouldn't really say anything. And a lot of that was just to do with being in so much pain and the other aspect of I didn't really know how to explain what I was feeling or how to really get it across because admitting that you don't want to be here when you're a teenager is really difficult and things like that. Or I think a lot of it is you don't understand the risk of ignoring it. I didn't get it. People told me, you know, you'd hear the odd thing about concussions. And in my mind, it was pro football players who had had like I couldn't even count how many head injuries or head knocks. And so I thought that's what you needed to do to, you know, get something like CTE. And I was like, well, I have no risk. Like, I'm okay. I've only had a few. Never really thought much about it. Had a lot of headaches and just told myself that eventually they would go away. And I never understood that it could change my entire life. And I think educating young people that it is not good to rig baseline tests or any of those types of things would be also very, very important to helping athletes getting back into the sport. Because if they get back in properly, it is also a lot safer. Yeah, I love how you brought that piece in is educating young people, which can sometimes be like beating your head against a wall, right? Because they, <laughs> first of all, if it comes from an adult, then chances are they're going to take it with a grain of salt anyway. But, but yeah, educating them on the fact that this is something that you really need to take seriously because 
you're not going to be remembering your friends' names in high school. You know, that's a big thing. And I've seen athletes that have had that significant of an issue after one or maybe even mm-hmm. two. But you're right, too. Like, everybody thinks, oh, it's football players. Horseback riding is actually the most common sport to have a head injury per capita. And soccer is another huge one that people don't think about. And so we've got to be better at educating where the risk is and what sports the risks are really involved in. Mm -hmm. I think it's the media really plays it off as football, 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 which is in some ways it's good because there's a lot of money going into the research now of concussions because of football, but it's missing a lot of other sports. Yeah. Like you said, I was a show jumper for horses and that's where almost all of my concussions were from or they were just from being a kid, like snowboarding down a hill. I crashed once and those types of things. It wasn't always even in my sport. And it is really important to understand the risk, especially as a young teenager who's super stubborn, who doesn't believe you. But I get what you mean when you said you've had athletes not remember names. I'm missing about two years that I remember mostly from what people have told me. And then I have glimpses of things. But for example, there's pictures. You get like memories on social media now. And almost all of my high school memories, I couldn't tell you where they were, what I was doing, if I see the picture with no context behind it. And it's because I have no memory of those years. So it is definitely something that we need to address. And we are going to talk more on signs that families and coaches can watch out for, but we're going to take a quick break before that. Cognitive FX is a research-driven clinic that has successfully treated thousands of patients who have long-lasting symptoms from concussions or other brain-related injuries. Cognitive FX has an innovative approach to recovery that uses an advanced fMRI scan to map the function in your brain. Treatment at Cognitive FX takes five days to complete and uses your fMRI scan as a guide and baseline to ensure that your treatment is personalized and effective. This means that you won't need to schedule and keep track of multiple specialists, locations, dates, times, or therapies because it will all be prepared for you when you arrive. Once you've completed their treatment, you receive a personalized at-home plan to continue your recovery and gain access to their online patient portal that has instructional videos and resources for your continued recovery. Conveniently, Cognitive FX also offers free consultations so both you and the doctors can ensure that treatment is a good choice for you and your injury. Visit their website at CognitiveFXUSA.com. Don't delay your recovery any longer. Find solutions at CognitiveFX today. Welcome back to the Post-Concussion Podcast with myself, Bella Page, and today's guest, Dr. Michael Longyear. So one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit before we get into PTSD are what are some of the signs families and coaches can really watch out for? I know we mentioned friends, but what do you think are some of the bigger ones that are often missed that maybe they can keep on a list or keep at the back of their head to watch out for athletes who are struggling? So that's a great question. I mean, the big ones are out there, right? Everybody knows if your kid's sleeping more or less than usual, headache. But some of the little ones that people might not catch and I've seen some athletes do it, like if they got a hat on all the time or they're always pulling their hood up, to kind of block out the sun or you see them like wearing sunglasses quite a bit or sunglasses with a hat and they don't have the ability to kind of block out some of that sensory input so they're doing it on their own i've seen guys that'll just they kind of start wearing headphones all over the place 
the big noise canceling ones, not because they're listening to anything, but because they need to block out that sensory input. So if you see little things like that, other things is if they're just acting differently. We had a, a woman one time bring us her son who was 16 and they came in because her kid, this is literally what she said, my kid is a jerk. Like he's acting out against his brother and sister. He's not the big brother that he used to be. All of those kind of things are big signs and symptoms to say, you know, maybe this head injury is lingering. And he was four weeks post-injury and had been back playing football, back playing soccer, but he was still a jerk to his family. And then when he started to talk to him, it was a lot of, well, yeah, I hate myself. And like just negative on him that he finally opened up about after that, which is why he was mad at his family. So I think those things, if you can pick out those little changes in personality and start to see if they're changing a lot anger-wise or emotionality, but the hiding their head, hiding from sun, hiding from light is another big one too. Mm -hmm. I really like that. It's actually something we've talked about a lot on here is I used to call it my hat because I didn't leave the house without one. I didn't even sit in the house without one. It was more of like a safety net. I called it my false sense of security because my head was in so much pain that if I had a hat on, it kind of felt like there was a barrier between me and the rest of the world. And things like light sensitivity and stuff like that really helped as well. But I lived like I would sit at the kitchen table and my hood would be up. I would walk out the door and there would be a hat on my head. I didn't go anywhere without anything on my head for a few years. It took some time to actually... Once I realized like the headaches aren't here anymore, you don't always have to be wearing this. I started like going out of the house without one. And it actually was nerve wracking at first because it feels like everybody could touch my head. And it was so sensitive at the time that I had a lot of anxiety about it. And then I like that you mentioned the emotion because I was horrible. And I know I was to my mom. I'm glad I don't remember it all because I don't think I want to. And I know actually close friends of mine, I'm good friends with their mom. And they mentioned that their son was being weird, not acting like himself. And I'm good friends with his sister. And she said, he's just really angry. He lashes out at us for no reason, storms off from the table, like little things that they notice that don't match his personality. They're like, that's not him. Usually he's really calm, really polite and friendly. And now he's not. And you could shrug your shoulders and say they're being a teenager, or you could maybe acknowledge that something isn't right. So it is always important to double check those types of things. And what I really wanted to get onto next was PTSD. And so post-traumatic stress disorder is something athletes deal with, military deals with, everyday people deal with. It is everywhere. For example, athletes deal with it myself. I had some of it. And a lot of the time it was doing other sports. For example, snowboarding with my girlfriend on a hill and the hill was covered in ice. And I had to sit down and I was like, I can't. And she's like, you've been snowboarding since you were four. <laughs> and like my heart is pumping. Like I wear my Apple watch and it notifies me when my heart rate gets really high. And I was like, everything's going off. And she's like, well, just go slow. You don't have to go as fast as you want to go. And I had to like, kind of be like, I just don't want to hurt my head. That anxiety got really big of like, I don't want to get hurt again, because I know what that can feel like. I know what the setbacks are. And it became kind of terrifying to go backwards in my recovery. And I've gotten over that throughout the years. But there has been the odd moment where I'm like, I can't do this. Like, there's no way 
Like, I cannot get hurt again. No, thank you. <laughs> I am out. <laughs> and I think a lot of players feel like that as well, but in the middle of playing, which is very difficult. So what type of PTSD have you dealt with? Yeah, so I've been fortunate to work with some really cool athletes as well as military veterans. And so PTS has been at the forefront of a lot of those cases. And, you know, again, I think it's something that gets looked over. There's been some research in the past and I don't know that I necessarily agree with this, but I like that it shed a light on things that they don't necessarily believe, or at least in this research article, they didn't believe that there was what they call post-concussion syndrome. They believed that PCS was PTS and that it was the way that your brain had manifested kind of the emotionality of the concussion. And again, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I like that it shed a light on that and that, you know, a lot of what if we look at the brain, if it's been injured or if it's been through a traumatic event emotionally, it kind of knocks down your brain's resilience. And so you don't have as much of an ability to deal with stressors in your environment. And whether it's an athlete who's dealing with post-traumatic stress from the injury or it's a soldier who's dealing with post-traumatic stress from a bomb going off next to him, it affects the brain in very similar ways and it decreases your brain's resilience to be able to handle traumas or handle future traumas. I had a, a soccer player one time that we worked with and we did a lot of work to rehab him from a really bad concussion and, and he really wanted to play soccer. And we were able to do just about everything with him in the office. We got him heading balls in the field across the street. We had him, you know, doing all sorts of stuff. And he was symptom free. I mean, he could handle, he would have passed any return to play program that anybody put together. And as soon as he stepped on the field with the lights on, game time, all of his symptoms flooded back. It brought him back to that place when he got injured and everything came back, the dizziness, the headache, the difficulty with balance, everything came back almost immediately. And he wasn't able to play in the game. And we never really got him back onto the field after that because what he realized was it was time to kind of retire and hang it up and it wasn't worth going through all of that again. But that's a real thing, right? Like you, I loved your story. Like as soon as you saw ice, it took you back to that event. And the way that we often teach about PTS is there's nothing post-traumatic about it. Your brain is actually going through that event again in real time. The limbic brain, which is the part of the brain that deals with emotions it doesn't own a watch and it doesn't have a calendar. So when it starts to freak out, it doesn't know the difference between five years ago or right now. It just knows that it sees similarities and it wants to survive and keep you safe. So those symptoms are ways to get you to kind of sit down or stop and take a break. Mm -hmm. So I found that fascinating with that kind of PTS aspect is it's your brain kind of trying to protect you by using the symptoms that it knows you'll pay attention to. Yeah, it actually reminds me, we had a podcast guest almost two years ago now who had PTSD from a bad snowmobile accident. And she always explained it as she would feel like she was ice, she would be shivering in the middle of summer when the symptoms came on. And that's what it shows that your body thinks you're going through it. Like she said, she'd be like teeth chattering in the summer. And she's like, it's because I was really cold during the actual event and she had to do a lot of grounding techniques and mindfulness and all those types of techniques that are out there to help her kind of ground herself to be like, where I am right now is okay. I am okay. Things like that. But it does prove that 
a lot of the concussion stuff is just as much of a mental game as it is a physical one. And I think it gets missed a lot. We focus so much on our physical symptoms that we forget that our mental symptoms are there and they kind of catch up with us. Like my mental symptoms overly caught up with me. I had my headaches almost gone. Everything was very good, except for like they came back from show jumping a horse because the up and down movements <laughs> and certain things were too much, but otherwise they didn't really exist. And then all those mental health issues that I had developed over about seven years of treatments and therapies didn't go away overnight like I thought they would. So it is really important to talk about them. And I love that we're talking about them now. And so is there anything else you'd like to add before we end today's episode? Just that we really need to pay attention to this, you know, and I think we brought up a good point earlier in that everybody thinks it's football and that that's the injury or that's the sport that you get injured in. But the reality is, is it's multiple sports. And I've had people who were extreme sport athletes and most of their concussions actually didn't come in their extreme sport. Concussions happen in a lot of ways. They happen in car accidents. That's something that has been overlooked a lot is we'd get a lot of patients with whiplash and do all this rehab for the neck, but nobody ever paid attention to the head. And so they would end up suffering and cases getting closed and they're still suffering because the whiplash was better, but the head injury never even got looked at. So even in cases like that, where we're not even necessarily handling athletes or talking about athletes specifically, we can have a head injury. The other piece is remember that you don't actually have to hit your head to have a head injury. It's the brain kind of sloshing around on the inside. So even if you think that it wasn't a head injury and you're like, well, I didn't hit my head. I just got hit really hard going really fast. Those things can all cause it as well. Mm -hmm. And to the people who aren't dealing with the head injury, but you have a friend or a family member, one of the things that I've seen is, you know, just be kind to them because, and I know you've talked about this in other podcasts and stuff about it being the invisible injury. It would almost be better if it was a fracture or a broken bone of some sort, because when the cast is on, everybody knows you're injured and they believe you're injured. And when the cast comes off, then everybody knows you're not. Well, with a head injury, there's no cast. It's impossible to see. But it also, it's what we're realizing is a lifetime injury and something that has to be managed forever. So the cast never truly comes off. So there's always going to be some things that might limit or might bring on those triggers if it's PTS. So just be kind to the person that you're dealing with that's gone through, especially multiple head injuries, because a lot of times there's those little triggers that bring that stuff back. That I think is the biggest message for me in leaving. It. Yeah, no, it's great. And thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today and sharing some of your experience with post-concussion athletes. Thank you for having me. Need more than just this podcast? Be sure to check out our website, postconcussioninc.com, to see how we can help you in your post-concussion life. From a support network to one-on-one -on -one coaching, I believe life can get better because I've lived through it. Make sure you take it one day at a time.